probably, it's probably been last year. I started an on and off series uh, on tough passages, and I don't expect you to remember that uh, because many of us can't even remember what the sermon was about last week. Uh, but I don't know, we did this two or three nights, two or three Sunday nights, where we turned to a passage that has been notoriously difficult to interpret, and we dug into that and hopefully gained some better understanding. We're going to do that tonight, and we may do that again on and off on Sunday nights. Tonight, we're going to look at Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 22, and really, we're going to, we're going to look at two tough passages, so... This is going to be an extra challenging evening. Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 22 uh, and going to verse 30, this is the section that we're going to be digging into. And within this section, we encounter both a difficult parable and a difficult teaching. Jump with me into the text to verse 27. We'll just go straight to this very brief parable of Jesus, he says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Now with many of Jesus' parables, we can, some of them are are difficult, but with many of them we can um, at least generally figure out what he's talking about. We can understand uh, the the objects and the figures that he uses and the general concepts that, that he is conveying. And, and certainly, uh, the deeper that we go into Jesus' parables, the, the deeper our understanding of the teaching is. I, I once heard a parable described as, or when you're studying a parable, it's like the moment you think you have grasped the meaning, you fall through a trapdoor to a deeper uh, level of understanding. And that is the, the genius and the artistry of Jesus with these parables, but for many, this parable is more mysterious than the rest. And we are left saying, you know, what is going on here? What is this all about? Who is this strong man Jesus speaks about? And what are his goods that are referred to? And who is it that, cl- that comes to plunder his house? Very mysterious parable that Jesus presents to us in Mark chapter 3. And then what we find directly on the heels of this parable is a difficult teaching. Starting at verse 28, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Not only is that a difficult teaching, but that's a disturbing, alarming teaching, statement by Jesus. And it's run a chill down the spine of many who have stumbled upon, encountered these very verses. And we see in the Gospel of Matthew that we have a direct parallel to this account. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32 is almost a direct parallel of the events of our passage in Mark. But we have this teaching uh, repeated on its own in the Gospel of Luke. I just want to read Luke's account briefly. Luke chapter 12, verse 10. 
The Gospel writer Luke says, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But, the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So there's Jesus again, talking about the seriousness of this particular sin. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And there have been a lot of people through the ages, a lot of Christians, even, who have said, man, I sure hope I haven't committed that one. I sure hope that on the last day, on the day of judgment, I will not be found guilty of having committed that particular sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So what does all this mean? Two tough passages, a parable, and a teaching. Well, as always, it is imperative that we study every verse and every passage of Scripture within its proper context. And this tonight ought to be a case study in the importance of studying Scripture in context. So we're going to rewind a bit, go back to verse 22, where this section of Scripture begins, and examine this parable and teaching uh, in the context of what happens here in the story of the Gospel. So let's start in verse 22. And the scribes, these Jewish leaders, who came down from Jerusalem... We're saying he is possessed by Beelzebul. And they're also saying, by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. A few things that I notice here. First is that the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem have taken notice of the ministry of Jesus. He has come onto their radar screen which makes what Jesus is doing all the more dangerous. Uh, They have heard about the kinds of things that he's been doing, uh, the miracles that he's been performing uh, in his ministry, and uh, he's caught their attention. And they have come from Jerusalem, and this is the kind of thing that they were saying. Now, something else I notice here is that Jesus, it's evident, to them and to everybody, that Jesus is actually performing miracles. He's performing otherworldly, supernatural signs and wonders that can't simply be dismissed and swept under the rug. They demand an explanation. And because these scribes, these Jewish religious leaders, wouldn't dare ascribe Jesus' power to God, they've got to look elsewhere. And so, who do they turn to? The only other source of power that that is possible, Satan. And they begin saying that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul. Who is that? What is that? This is a word that means, uh, a title that means master of the house, and here it unequivocally, undeniably refers to Satan. And so they're saying, they are claiming, they are spreading the rumor that Jesus is possessed by the devil. And he's able to do all of these things, uh, cast out demons in particular, because he has the prince of demons living inside him. And this is not the only time that they've lodged this accusation against Jesus. Check out the Gospel of Matthew. Keep your place in Mark. And look at Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 32. As they were going away, Jesus and his apostles, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. 
And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. The crowds recognize the power of Jesus, the authority with which he is performing these miracles. But the Pharisees, they, they want to tamp that down. They want to suppress that. And they say, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. He's possessed by the devil. And Matthew chapter 10, the next chapter over, verse 25, Jesus acknowledges this accusation as he teaches his disciples. He says in the second part of verse 25, if they have called the master of the house, me, Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So he's saying, just get ready for, for this same kind of stuff when I pass the ministry off to you. Get ready for these same charges to be lodged against you. They said that about me, that I'm possessed by the devil. They'll say the same about you. So just be prepared. And we should know that practicing magic by Satan's power was a capital offense for Jews. And it was punishable by stoning. And so the Jewish religious leaders knew that if they could gain any traction with this line of attack, then they had a chance to take Jesus down early in his ministry. They had a chance to, to snuff him out, to do away with him before he drew any more followers to himself. So this is a serious, perverse accusation that they lodge at Christ. You're doing this stuff because you've got the devil living inside you. You're possessed, you're possessed by Beelzebul, this title for Satan. And so how's Jesus going to respond? What, what will Jesus say in response to this accusation? Well, first, uh, he, he uses what really is also a parable that employs some, some reason and logic that makes a lot of sense. Look, starting at verse 23. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? You know, this doesn't make any sense, this charge. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Jesus, in effect, says here, if Satan is serious about building a strong operation in this world, and he is, make no mistake. If Satan is serious about having control over this world, and he is, make no mistake about that. Why would he work against himself? That would all but ensure his collapse. Jesus says here, how can Satan cast out Satan? If the forces of evil are divided, then that creates a shaky foundation that cannot stand. These accusations make no sense because Satan wouldn't fight against Satan and the forces the, the uh, forces of evil, the demons, wouldn't go up against other demons. And so with this parable, Jesus is showing the foolishness of this charge. He's dismantling their accusation with these reasonable, logical arguments here. Uh, how can Satan cast out Satan? You know, this makes no sense. He's, he's getting the people to think about it. But secondly, he responds to this, uh, 
perverse accusation with the parable that we read earlier that comes up in verse 27. Let's read it again. Now we are better equipped to read it and to understand it now that we have dug into the context. Verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So, who is the strong man here? Well, it's clear to me in reading it that the strong man Jesus is referring to is Satan. Jesus calls Satan strong. And we should take take note of that. Satan is powerful. There's no doubt about that. He's fierce as a lion and he's cunning as a snake. Peter says, you need to be on the lookout. You need to be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone, anyone, to devour. The devil is dangerous. He's fierce. He's powerful. But he's also crafty. He's sly. He's cunning. Jesus says he's been lying in John chapter 8, verse 44. He's been lying from the very beginning. Lying is a part of his nature, his character. He's the father of all lies. He's the one who told the first lie. He's the one who taught humanity how to lie. And any time you have trouble sifting through lies and truth, you know Satan has been at work. And we live in a culture where it's difficult to ascertain the truth. So many lies being batted about all the time. Satan is at work in this world. He's powerful. He's an enemy. He's a strong man. Jesus, called, Jesus, the Son of God, calls Satan the strong man. In this parable, what are his goods? Jesus talks about his goods. Well, specifically in the context, we're talking about the demon-possessed. Jesus, as part of his ministry, has been driving demons out of people. And so he's thinking about how Satan has taken over certain people. And maybe we, uh, certainly, we don't see demon possession today as we did uh, when we read the New Testament, but wouldn't we all acknowledge that Satan has a lot of people today firmly within his grasp? I mean, Satan has caught all sorts of people within his net, within his snare. Is trapped. This fallen world is his domain. And he, in a sense, possesses many people. He's tripped up many people. Keith this morning talked about Christians are, are susceptible to, to being caught in a transgression, to being in, ensnared by Satan himself. So Satan has many people caught in his snare. These are his goods. But the parable hints that there is one stronger than the strong man. Yes, Satan is strong, but Jesus' parable here talks about one who is stronger, one who is strong enough to to break into the strong man's house, to bind him up and to plunder his goods, to take back what Satan has captured 
And that man is none other than Jesus the Christ. Jesus is stronger than the strong man. And since Jesus has already been about proclaiming the gospel in word and deed, and specifically about driving the forces of evil out of people, driving demons out of those who, who are possessed, he's already snatching people out of Satan's grasp. That means he's already bound the strong man. And I think about the temptation in the wilderness. When Jesus is drawn by the Spirit out to the wilderness, and Satan tries his hardest to trip him up, he tries three different tactics to tempt Jesus, and each time Jesus responds with Scripture to combat the attacks of the evil one, and on the last time, he says, Be gone, Satan. And what happens? The devil leaves him. And in that moment, Jesus proves that Satan is powerless against him and against his commitment to proclaiming that the kingdom of God is breaking into the world. He's powerless against the ministry of Jesus, the proclamation of the kingdom. Yes, Satan is strong. He's a strong man. Jesus says as much in his parable. But but Satan is not stronger than Jesus. Jesus is the stronger one who can break into his house, who can tie him up, and who can take back what rightfully belongs to him. Satan is strong, but his hands are tied. His power is limited. James Dobson tells the story of a missionary who had been away from his hut in the jungles of Africa for a few days. When he returned home, he was shocked to discover a huge jungle snake on the floor of his simple hut, which to any of us would be a living nightmare. The snake was much too large to slay by hand, so he returned to his truck and got his pistol, which had only one bullet in it. He fired at the head of the snake and mortally wounded it, yet the snake did not die instantly. Instead, it flopped and flailed around inside the hut and made a wreck of everything, knocked all kinds of furniture and stuff over before it died a few hours later. That snake, is a visual representation of Satan's condition in our world today. Jesus has mortally wounded Satan. He did so at the cross. He did so at the resurrection. Satan's fate is sealed. Satan is working on borrowed time. Satan's end is destruction. That is certain. This fulfills the oldest prophecy that there is about Christ. What did God say to the serpent uh, when he was meting out punishment uh, back in the garden at the fall of Adam and Eve? He says, you shall bruise his head, that's for sure. Speaking of the offspring of Eve, speaking of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah who was to come, you shall bruise his head, that's what happens at the cross. Jesus is wounded at the cross. Satan thinks that he's victorious at the cross, but what else does God say? But... uh, I'm sorry, you shall bruise his heel. Got to get my words right here. You shall bruise his heel. You'll injure Jesus. You'll do harm to Jesus. But he shall bruise your head. He will mortally wound you. He will put a certain end to you. These are Satan's final days. And he is just like that snake. He is violently writhing and flopping and flailing around. 
uh, with all the strength and the power that he has. And he's trying to trap and ensnare as many people as he can and drag them down to hell with him. Trying to destroy as much as he can before Jesus returns. But make no mistake, he has been defeated. And I don't know about you, but in this brief parable that's just a verse long, I find a lot of encouragement. I can derive a lot of strength from this, especially when I think about facing temptation. When I think about being attacked by the evil one, I want to be able to remember that though the master of the house is strong, that I serve the master of the master of the house. I serve not just the master of the house, I serve the master of all. The one who has already defeated Satan. Satan might be strong, but I serve the one who can break into Satan's house, who can tie him up, and who can steal back what rightfully belongs to him. So yeah, Satan is powerful. But when you really think about it, Satan is also pathetic. And so why would I want to give anything to him. What does he have on Jesus? Nothing. Nothing. I serve the one who's already defeated him. And third, Jesus, we don't want to miss this, Jesus responds to this charge by the scribes that, hey, you are, you are driving out demons by the power of demons. He responds to this charge with this teaching. Let's read it again. Verses 28 through 30. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Now when Jesus says that all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, he is looking ahead to his atoning death. He is anticipating his sacrifice on the cross, which which will ensure the forgiveness of all those who by faith come to Jesus. But why is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit so serious? Well, think about the role, think about the work of the Spirit. Jesus says that after I leave, the one who is, is coming, my helper, speaking of the Spirit, he will guide you into all truth. He will be the one to complete my ministry. He will be the one to fill in all the gaps of my testimony. Don't miss what he has to say. And we have what he had to say preserved for us in God's holy word, in the scriptures. Jesus says, I'm sending a helper to you. He will remind you of what I said and he will complete what I said with additional teaching. And he is, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he is the one given to us the believers at baptism. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And He's given to us at baptism as a seal for the day of redemption, as a down payment, as a guarantee that we will receive eternal life when Jesus returns. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. So if you have a person who persistently, who flagrantly, who decisively attributes to Satan what is accomplished only by the power of God's Spirit, then that person can never have forgiveness. You cannot be in a relationship with God without the Spirit 
The Holy Spirit is the means by which we can share a relationship with God now and forevermore. But if you are saying that Jesus is not working by the power of God's Spirit, but by the power of the devil, uh, then, then you are cutting yourself off from the salvation that God wants to provide. And you just, it would be impossible for you to be saved by Jesus Christ and by the powerful working of His Spirit. And so I think that Christians, and what I mean by Christians are those who are seeking to be obedient to Christ, are those who are trying their best to walk in the light. Christians, the people I'm talking to tonight, we should not be worried about committing this sin. Because we are aiming to walk by the Spirit that we have been given. Galatians chapter 3, verse 25. We believe that Jesus' work continues through us by the power of the Spirit. So let's think about this whole passage as a whole. You know, the next time that Satan places a temptation in your path, the next time that he throws an arrow or a dart your way, the next time he attacks you at your weakest point, you need to remember that you serve the one who has bound him and who is plundering his house. Yes, we live in a broken world. Yes, we live in a world in which Satan still wields a lot of power and influence. And we see example after example of that each and every day. We live in a world where our bodies and our health deteriorate. Um, Our physical and our mental health. It can be a discouraging place to live. Because the work of the evil one is so evident among us. And we become weak and frail. I was so moved this afternoon... Uh, when I saw what Pam Walker put up on Facebook, a beautiful video of her dad, uh, a man, a godly man many of us know, Marlon Conley, singing Jesus Loves Me to Pam and Dan's grandson in his high chair. And Pam wrote on that video, in an imperfect world where memory fades, I'm thankful that songs seem to linger on. Precious times with great-grandparents. Brother Conley's mind has been fading for some time. His memory fading. And yet he could remember every word to the song, Jesus loves me. And I was thinking about this text, preparing for this lesson, and I saw that video. And I just thought, Jesus wins. We serve the victorious one. As many battles and as many victories as Satan might think that he can stack up against us in this life, we serve the one who has already overcome Satan, who has already sealed his fate, has already defeated him. And the great thing is, Jesus wants us to join Him in snatching the lost out of Satan's death grip. I think about Jude 23. So, we're not just playing defense against Satan. 
We're not just tiptoeing through life and trying to avoid temptation here and there, trying to keep out of Satan's way. Because of Jesus, because we serve the one who is stronger than the strong man, who can bind him up and who is plundering his house, we can, we can go on the offense against Satan. We can go at him because we know that he's in the, in, in the final death throes. And he's just flailing and flopping about trying to entrap as many people as we can. We can join our king and our major general, Jesus Christ, and march into battle against Satan. And take back what is rightfully his. The souls of those whom currently Satan has in his grasp. That's what God wants us to do. Those are our marching orders. And so I hope that in this coming week, this passage will give, will provide as much strength to you as it has to me. I hope that when you face a temptation from the evil one, that you will remember who you serve. You serve the one who's stronger than the strong man. Tonight, if, uh, you know, Brother Keith gave a very powerful lesson. And I'll be honest with you, I was hoping that, that someone would respond and would be baptized. Uh, but regardless, he was able to, play, to plant a lot of seeds. And we need to remember even... Uh, though there were no public responses, that the invitation is always open. That the offer of salvation is always on the table. And that we can at any time respond, reach out and take what God has so graciously offered to us. That we can at any time seek someone out, confess sin, have them pray for us, be restored. But tonight, maybe you've, decided you need to do that in a public way. You need your church family to be praying for you tonight. Maybe you need to commit your life to Jesus Christ for the first time. You need to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. I hope that you'll decide to do that right now as we stand and sing.